Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig and I'm joined today by Matt Burgess. Hi, Matt. Hi. We want to go back to school a bit. We want to do a bit of text analysis. You know, at school we did that with poems or Shakespeare. So we've got a text and now we want to interpret the true meaning of the text. The um, writer we are going to interpret today is Dr. Rod Carr. He's chair of the Climate Change Commission and last week he published a 636-word essay you can call it that, on the Climate Commission's website. The title, Why Not the Least Cost Pathway to Net Zero? Question mark. And the subheading on the website said, Our chair, Dr. Rodkar, shares why New Zealanders deserve better than just the least cost pathway to a low emissions future. Matt, what was your first thought when you saw this text and what do you take out of it? The text, look, let's give Rod a bit of credit just for a start. He's written down what I think everybody in the public service is thinking about when um, they're working on climate change. Um, Rod tells us pretty clearly, well, first of all, he repudiates least cost reduction in emissions um, as the operating principle for how um, how we do policy. And he says we should be targeting lots of other things besides emissions as well as emissions, biodiversity, equity, future generations, welfare, and so on. Rod gives three, there's really three reasons Rod gives for um, avoiding a least cost approach to reducing emissions. Um, The first is that he says society is complex, people have personal values, they have choices and preferences. The second is that um, least cost doesn't take into account lots of effects on Uh, individuals, on communities, biodiversity, the rights of future generations. And then a third reason, least cost gives us poor outcomes. Um, And he says there's lots of poor outcomes. He only offers one, which is trees. He's worried about trees covering the land and postponing things for future generations. He might actually have a point there. I'd love to know what a second um, example is. That's the basis for him rejecting least cost. Uh, So one more point. The interesting thing is that he rejects least cost, um, but doesn't tell us any um, other principle that he would use instead. Um, He lists a whole bunch of things that he's worried about. He tells us he doesn't want to do what cuts emissions most effectively, and he doesn't give us any alternative principle. Um, So as far as we can tell, he's saying that when the Climate Change Commission says we should subsidise electric vehicles, for example, um, the Commission has no basis for recommending that. except that it just likes electric vehicles. Mm. I agree with all of that, except I also had a slightly different uh, response to the text when I first read it, because I was just struck by the language he uses and by the way he couches his argument. I mean, Rodkar is an economist by training. He's got a PhD in economics. And yet, when you read this, it doesn't sound like anything an economist could have written. And I just want to quote you one paragraph from his piece. So this is Rodkar. He says, we care about risk and uncertainty about the next generation, about how land and resources are used. And we care about our personal relationships and relationships between communities. You can't put a price on these things. And I thought to myself, hang on, this is what economists do. We put a price on everything. And we do this for very good reasons. And actually, economics has developed a whole theory, a subsection of economics, utility theory out of that. And the whole purpose of economics is actually to compare choices. Because we live in a world of scarcity, we live in a world of lots of choices, and you, you have to make these choices all the time. Whether you spend the next hour working, or calling a friend, or going to sleep, or going to the gym. We make 
choices and we make comparisons between different alternatives all the time. And in comes Rod Carr, the economist, and tells us actually you can't put a price on these things. And that's disingenuous because we, we do this automatically all the time, whether we to put a dollar price on it or whether we just rank alternatives, we do this. And he, in this one little paragraph, basically throws out the whole of utility theory. And in the following paragraphs, I think he actually throws out the whole of environmental economics. I think, you know, it's sort of almost, um, it's popular to say that, you know, you can't put a number on it. And I, I think it's the idea that, you know, you can't work out with any precision um, some things that applies 30 years from now, whether that's to people or property or assets or whatever. But I think what Rod is really saying here is he's rejecting the principle of trade-offs, that mm. when we attack uh, emissions as the Climate Change Commission, we can disregard the whole idea of trade-offs and just do what we want without consequences. When I read through this, when I read through pretty much everything coming out um, from officials at the moment on climate change, this whole idea that policy has costs and sometimes policies don't work and sometimes policies have unintended consequences, those ideas are almost completely absent. The idea that the Climate Change Commission's recommendations could end up harming future generations inadvertently because something wasn't thought of just never seems to occur to these people. The idea that the only thing that hurts future generations is emissions and the only thing that benefits them is officials coming in with their grandiose plans, I think is obviously incorrect, but also dangerous because it's giving us what we're getting, overreach. Um, mm. And let me just say one other thing. Rod talks about all of these um, nice things, the effects on individuals and communities, our desire for future biodiversity, protecting future generations. He is not in a position, he has not put himself in a position to know the relationship between his recommendations and any of those things. I challenge anybody, defy anybody, to know the relationship between uh, a subsidy for electric vehicles and future buyers of adversity 30 or 40 years from now? I don't think that's an answerable question. But even worse, the Climate Change Commission isn't even doing the work to even know, even in principle, um, that relationship or any other. It's sending most of its recommendations without any serious analysis behind them. In its draft report, for example, we saw that um, uh, proposal to ban new gas connections beginning in four years. Now, there's all kinds of consequences that come out of that for the way restaurants operate, for um, distribution and well-being in homes and so on, uh, all without, as far as we know, the benefit of any analysis whatsoever. How is it possible that somebody like Rod Carr isn't aware of the possibility that his recommendations being made by the seat of the pants might not work out as well as he thinks? Yeah, and you, you made a good point on um, the inability in the end to consider different trade-offs. And let me just quote you another bit from Rod Carr's piece. He writes, when the Commission carries out its work, we are required to give advice on the direction of climate policy in Aotearoa and consider a range of factors of which cost is only one. First of all, I'd say everything is a cost if you cost it properly. So um, cost is only one factor, only says that he hasn't actually measured the other stuff. Okay, well, let, let's give him that. And then he goes on and says, pursuing the cheapest path fails to consider the impacts on individuals, communities, workers, businesses, families, and the principles of Tetirity or Waitangi. Well, again, if you measure all of this, you could put them into some kind of comparison, but he doesn't. And what he does instead is actually says, well, okay, we've got all of these other things. We have the impacts on individuals, communities, workers, and so on. And cost is another kind of consideration, but because the others are now 
kind of equally important, we can basically ignore cost. So even if cost is outrageously high, if some other grounds stand for doing that policy because it's good for something else, we've got a reason. And it's, it's, it's his get out of jail card. So the cost can overrun, the cost can become enormous and exorbitant. It doesn't matter because his get out of jail card, is, is he says, it doesn't really matter. It's it's a ludicrous. It's actually backwards, right? You know, we can't measure some things, so we're just going to ignore everything completely and do whatever we want. Mm-hmm. When car, look, I, let me make a couple of points. There's nothing special about carbon. It's like a negative commodity, right? A ton of carbon is a ton of carbon. Whether you cut it from through forestry or through cars, it has the exact same effect on climate. One less ton has the exact same benefit for climate, no matter what. So other things being equal, you're always going to do better um, by cutting carbon for a dollar instead of $10. Arguing that we shouldn't worry about costs um, when we're cutting carbon is like arguing for all the society and economic and, and environmental benefits of paying 10, to, 10 times too much for a ton of steel or a ton of grain or, or a litre of petrol or so on. Other things being equal, you're always better off if you're getting to the commodity for less cost rather than more. And, and that's the essence of environmental economics. It's the essence of everything, actually. We're, you know, The whole organising principle of society is that we, um, we do the best we can uh, within our budget. Mm-hmm. And... What Rod is repudiating here, I think, is fundamental and cannot generally be true. Even if you can find isolated examples of where paying more is, is a good idea, generally you're worse off. The second point I make is that when Rod repudiates or rejects this idea of least cost, he really means it, right? When you look at the draft report, um, the commission plan says wants us to pay somewhere between five and 17 times more um, to cut carbon. Let's call it an even 10. Um, Paying 10 times too much to achieve really ambitious uh, emissions targets, net zero in less than 30 years, it's a really big deal, especially in a country that relies on agriculture so heavily. That's a hard target if you're doing it at least cost. I don't think Rod Carr or anybody proposing to pay 10 times too much to achieve that target should be taken seriously. And so when Rod dismisses cost, you know, cost is actually the decisive element that will determine whether we get to our target or not. If we're paying 10 times too much, we will fail and we should recognise that now and not go down the path that this Climate Change Commission is saying we should. It's just extraordinary to me that you've got a Climate Change Commission that's thinking about what the world looks like in 2050 but hasn't really seriously asked the question, who wants to pay more than $800 for a tonne of carbon and what are the consequences of that for households' back pocket? Because they're really big. Totally agree. Totally agree on the general point that economics is all about finding efficiencies and defining them. It's especially true, I think, in the uh, field of environmental economics. So, I mean, environmental economics basically started in the 1920s with the work of Pigou. So that was the first time that um, environmental taxes were raised as a possibility. We then had um, other developments in environmental economics in the 1960s, Ronald Coase, of course, presenting the possibility of negotiations um, between affected parties. Then we had, since the late 1960s, um, talk about cap-and-trade schemes for all sorts of different pollutants. So what I'm saying is we've had a 100 years of environmental economics, and basically all of that is about the reduction of pollution in the most efficient way. Once you have actually internalized um, the externalities, as we say in economics, you should, your, your task is actually first to determine what is the optimum amount of pollution and afterwards, once you find it, how do you bring it down to that level? And economists have written whole libraries about that. 
And here comes Vodka and basically tells us, okay, forget about all of that. In 636 words, I basically destroy the whole edifice of environmental economics built since 1920. And seriously, this is a person who actually once taught environmental economics at the University of Canterbury. And I find it astonishing if any student of economics had delivered such an essay to me as a lecturer, I would have actually marked it down as a failure and sent them back to the drawing board. So I simply do not understand how someone as theoretically trained as Rodkar is could write such a repudiation of basic principles of economics. I think what's going on is, look, I read this article and I think I, you know, saw what you saw, which is a, a rejection of the framework. But I think, you know, what's going on is that Rod thinks about climate policy is about more than emissions. Um, you know, this idea that when you, so, when you solve climate, you also have to solve biodiversity, you have to deliver social justice, um, you have to worry about future generations, you know, and, and 20 other things. Um, climate policy is about everything in Rod's mind, I think. Um, and lots of complicated, connected, but quite different things for which there is no um, reasonable way to, there's no spreadsheet big enough to, to make sense of all of them. I think that's a model of what's going on. And I, I think we just have to cut through that and say, look, you've got one job here. Climate change is caused by emissions. We've got too much of them. The reason we've got too much of them is because pollution was free. A complete solution to the mispricing that led to this problem is pricing. Um, the whole reason the government's in the space is because there is an externality to be internalized. That is the starting principle for all of this. And it should be unacceptable that we have government agencies, especially independent agencies, um, effectively rejecting the framework for them being in this space in the first place. Because as they're doing it, what Rod is saying is he wants to do everything. Mm. And there is one sentence here in his piece which really sums it up quite nicely. He writes, emissions pricing won't provide support to people hit hardest by the direct or indirect impacts of climate change. Well, well, first of all, I would say that is not the purpose of emissions pricing. If you want to have compensation, you can do this afterwards. I mean, we talked about a carbon dividend, for example, from the ETS. So you could actually deal with the social effects of dealing with emissions in different distributional policies. But he goes on to say then in the same sentence, um, so emissions pricing won't ensure transformation across all sectors. And I thought, okay, this is where we're getting. So it's yeah. not about reducing emissions. It is about transformation. It is not just any transformation across all sectors. So he wants to have a comprehensive plan for the whole economy, for the whole of society. It's not about emissions anymore. It is transformation. That's right. And that's why um, Rod is proposing that we spend 10 times more than we need to to cut emissions. You know, there's some other objective in play here that's getting you from paying one uh, from paying a dollar up to $10. And you almost have to be um, grateful to him for spelling it out that way. At least he said it, everybody else is, is behaving consistent with what Rod's written without actually saying any of this stuff. So uh, good on Rod for saying this. One other thing, a similar thing that I noticed was um, uh, this idea that we can't cut at least cost because the first place the ETS goes is trees. Well, Rod's absolutely right about that. And look, communities, um, farmers are cert certainly are worried about trees, but it's, it's just frankly ridiculous to take one negative aspect of a least cost approach and use that one aspect to reject the entire principle of least cost. You can stick with the principle of least cost 
but alongside that, constrain things so that the negative elements are ruled out. So, for example, for trees, you could have a system where you have Parliament coming in and setting a limit on how many trees can be planted. While everything, while the system is optimising for least cost, working up to the limit on trees and then going to the next thing. So it just doesn't follow. You know, trees is, is a pretty isolated instance example, um, possibly a big one, but there is... It's just uh, extraordinary to see um, one example being used to reject an entire principle, and even worse, without any other principle to come in behind it. Yeah, I had the same response to that text, and actually I was so confused by the end of the 636 words that I thought I had to remind myself of what proper economics sounds like, and um, I went back to the textbook by Paul Samuelson and William Nordhaus, not because they're my favorite economists, but because they're mainstream economists, perhaps a little bit more on the left. And William Nordhaus, of course, won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on climate change. So I thought, well, maybe um, I'm unusual, maybe Rod Carr is closer to the profession these days. But actually, I, I just checked, and even William Nordhaus writes um, in his chapter on environmental economics, economists emphasize that the efficient management of externalities requires the proper pricing of natural and environmental resources. And the word efficient is important here. So in Nordhaus' textbook, and he is perhaps the world's best qualified economists on climate change, he stresses efficient management and the complete concept of efficiency is absolutely thrown out by Rod Carr. So he is totally removed from the mainstream of economics and certainly totally removed from the mainstream of environmental economics. You know, the whole model is wrong here. What, we, what should we be getting from Rod Carr and the Climate Change Commission? We should have a commission that is absolutely focused on cutting the most emissions for the least cost, doing whatever works best. And if that's trees, um, the Commission should be pushing trees because they're the most effective. It should be up to Parliament and councils and communities and farmers groups if they're concerned about trees, which they are, to push back. And so the, the right model is that you have a Commission that behaves in a predictable way that's simply trying to find the most effective way to take a tonne of carbon out of the atmosphere or stop it being emitted in the first place. And then you've got Parliament and other groups saying... Um, we don't like this, uh, we don't like that, but these other things are okay. And you've just got a commission that's taking those constraints from Parliament um, or other groups as given and then finding the next best thing. Instead, you've got a climate change commission that's essentially a political body, right? So it's not working within the constraints of Parliament. It's not even recognising constraints. Parliament said target net emissions. Commission says, no, no, we're going to do gross, thanks very much. With enormous consequences for it, um, Parliament hasn't said a thing. Uh, this Independent Climate Change Commission is an intensely political body because it's taking an honest job of making value judgments free of any objective um, framework, least cost. Uh, it's an unelected body of officials and actually activists um, who have just decided to take it on themselves to make judgments on our behalf. So when Rod talks about, you know, society's complex, people have different values, He's operating in a way that needlessly overrides those values when he could just be doing whatever works best and uh, that approach, cutting the most emissions for the least cost, is the approach that best respects people's values today, future generations, gives us the best chance to manage biodiversity. These alleged harms of um, getting to our targets for the least trouble, uh, I'd love Rod to spell out um, what those are, but the whole model should be that Parliament's worried about those downsides of least cost, not the Commission. 
So, so right at the beginning of our conversation, I said we want to do a text analysis. And at school, when we did text analyses, we typically try to figure out what was the intention of the author. And I've been thinking about that. And I think the intention of the author, if I may start, is actually to find an apology, an apology for not actually sticking to environmental economics, for not reaching least cost, by basically discarding everything, discarding the whole framework of economics and environmental economics, because it gives them a free ride. It gives them an anything goes, a get out of jail card. And deep down, I believe that actually Rodkar knows that what he's doing is failing to achieve economic efficiencies because he's qualified enough to see that. So he needs to bridge this cognitive dissonance in a way that he as the economist can see that what he's doing is not least cost and economists don't like doing that. And he now needs to find a good reason for deviating from economics. And the best way for him to deviate from economics is basically to throw out the framework. So saying, declaring, it doesn't matter anymore because we're following all sorts of other objectives. And actually, that's probably better and it's morally superior to economics. So that's how I read this, almost as an admission of guilt, of failing to comply with basic economic principles, saying, actually, there are things that are probably more important than that. So what he's doing is actually he's leaving, as you said before, he's leaving the sphere of economics and is moving completely into the sphere of politics, where anything goes and you don't have to justify yourself anymore. You just say what needs to be done and you don't measure it anymore. That's how I read this text. Yeah, I think that's right. He's, he's just put on paper, um, he's made express the, um, the disconnection, the total disconnection now that we're seeing between climate policy and, and the underlying problem, which is uh, the externality issue that led, has led to this whole issue in the first place. And so, you know, I think New Zealanders are entitled to say, no, hang on, actually the problem is emissions. Um, you need to be... Uh, you need to be much more focused on emissions than you are. But I think this is also just a, a, a demand for unlimited power, actually. Um, there is, you know, if we just follow, Rod wants to focus on everything and he doesn't want any, he doesn't declare any principle for how he will make decisions. Uh, as far as we can tell, it, it all depends on what side of bed he gets out of uh, tomorrow. Whatever your goal is, whether it's emissions or anything else, this is no way to get anything useful done um, in public policy. Uh, this completely undisciplined, trust us, we know what we're doing, we're not going to measure it, we're not going to um, release our model, you're not going to see the report until we're done, we're mostly not going to write down our thinking. Um, that approach uh, serves nobody except the officials in the Climate Change Commission and MFE and so on. And whatever you, officials just should not be believed when they say we're worried about biodiversity, we can solve it for future generations, we can deal with um, equity and distribution and emissions. They just aren't doing the, the processes and the modelling and the systems and the checks and balances aren't in place to do that. So they are making empty promises. We shouldn't trust them uh, for a moment longer. Everything they say about emissions and everything else, they're not going to deliver because the systems and processes aren't in place to do it. The final part of text analysis I think is typically talking about the intended audience. How would a text affect an audience? What would an audience think about a text? The thing is, actually, we've been talking about this now for more than 20 minutes. And um, I mean, let's face it, we're both economists. So we had a relatively predictable response to the text. The majority of New Zealanders are not economists, and the majority of New Zealanders probably don't understand economics that well. For them, I think the response to reading this text would be quite different, I think. Would you agree with me that the language that he uses is actually designed to make non-economists 
think that actually this guy is very caring, very kind, very compassionate. He knows what he's talking about, obviously, because he's got a PhD. And it, it I think non-economists would not see how bad this is because it's couched in such wonderfully caring language. Well, it's been a massively successful strategy for um, the environmental movement to talk about um, only the benefits of the things they want to do, never the downsides, uh, and with limited or no checks or balances after the fact to see whether any of the promises that were made actually came true. Um, so, you know, it's all motherhood and apple pie, um, but, you know, in the end the rubber's going to meet the road at some point. Uh, so what can we do to make people actually read between the lines and actually understand where he's going wrong? Well, I think we have to talk about the full story. Um, I think we have to start talking about what this means for households, actually. What does an $800 uh, carbon price mean for the price of milk, for the price of a flight um, to Auckland, for a flight to London, uh, for the cost of a tonne of steel or to build a house or whatever? It's absolutely profound. You know, there's no free lunch here. There's only trade-offs. If Rod wants to use climate policy to go and um, pretend to solve biodiversity, put more EVs on the road care about future generations or whatever. Every every time he introduces a new um, objective that's not emissions, we're paying more to, to cut carbon. And that means, you know, um, quite credibly paying double the price for petrol, nearly double the price for a litre of milk, um, an extra $3,000 to get to London each way, economy class. Um, 50%, 40% increase in the, in the cost of, you know, $800 a tonne really adds up. If you want biodiversity, you don't have to do it through climate policy. Just have a biodiversity um, policy on its own, doing its own thing, while the Climate Change Commission is just working out how to get to our targets quickly and effectively. And by the way, you know, we talk about paying $800 a tonne. The alternative is Apart from good policy doesn't just mean we pay less. It means we can get to those targets a lot sooner than 2050. Why the heck are we waiting f until 2050? Um, if with the shortest path we could get there, say, in 2045 or 2040. I mean, if the problem is climate change, if the problem is emissions, why are we wasting time on these other things if we don't have to? Thank you, Matt. And um, that brings us to the end of our text analysis. It really reminded me of our old school days when we spend hours discussing a single Shakespeare sonnet and um, we just spent the last 25 minutes discussing 636 words written by Dr. Rod Carr, Chair of the Climate Change Commission. The only difference I think between um, this exercise today and our school days was I think there was way more disagreement when analysing Shakespeare sonnets in class. We didn't have any disagreements today which is a, something I regret. We can try to do that next time, Matt. Yeah, but we can make that happen. But I think for, for now we are agreed that this is a piece that New Zealanders ought to read, ought to interpret and ought to understand because it is quite an important statement from the Chair of the Climate Change Commission. It's quite surprising actually that the media haven't responded to this as much as it had, would have deserved. But um, since the media don't do that, we do that on a podcast and it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.